0: Welcome to another edition of the Fourth Napoli Calcio Podcast. This is a podcast all about Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you, as always, for listening. On today's episode, we are going to preview our first match of 2022, which is a big one against Juventus. And I'm joined by a guest to help me with this preview. He is a freelance writer and one-third of the Italian Football Podcast. Carlo Garganese, welcome to Forza Napoli. Hey,
1: Joe. Thanks for having me. Uh, Happy New Year to everyone that's listening. How you doing?
0: I'm doing well and uh, Happy New Year to you as well. And thank you for coming on. It's definitely a pleasure to have you. All right, so let's get started. And we're going to assume that this match is actually going to be played on Thursday. There have been some rumblings about a possible postponement. Given the COVID situation in Italy, the league has made its position pretty clear that they do not intend to postpone any matches. That includes this one. That includes Juve's Supercopa match against Inter currently scheduled for the 12th, I believe. But they've also kind of left themselves vulnerable, I guess you can say, to intervention by the local health authorities. And so far, the the Napoli ASL said that they're going to monitor the situation We know there have been some positive cases in the squad, which we'll get to later. But as of right now, and we're recording this on Monday morning, Eastern time, the match is still scheduled to be played on the 6th. So we're going to preview the match on the assumption that it's going to proceed as planned. Now... Juve come into this match sitting fifth in the table, four points behind Atalanta in the final Champions League position and five points behind Napoli in third. So before we get to the match itself, I want to talk a little bit about how Juve got to this point, because I think a few seasons ago it would have been completely unheard of for, for Juventus fans to be told that they'd be sitting in fifth place. Right. And not frankly, not winning the Scudetto last season as well which is where we're at, at the midway point of this season. So, you know, this didn't happen overnight. I feel like it's been a bit of a gradual process over the last few seasons to get to this point. But Carlo, at what point did you realize that things were starting to go a little bit sideways with Juve?
1: I would say probably 2017, because that is the year that Juventus abandoned everything that they had done that had, made them the big, powerful, unstoppable team that we saw from, you know, let's say 2011, 2012 onwards that dominated Italian football. Everything that they did in order to get to that point, they abandoned it. And there's lots of little things that they did wrong, but I would say the number one was up until 2016, 2017, they had a very smart team-building approach on the sporting side of things anyway, in terms of the way that they built the team, they built the squad through Giuseppe Marotta, who was obviously the, the CEO or the transfer chief, let's say. And the way that he worked was he looked at the, the squad, he looked at the team and block by block, he he tried to strengthen each department, each position, clear vision of how what was needed before each transfer market and step by step, each summer market, each window, Juventus slowly improved. They improved, they improved. And obviously, they, they that's why they, they dominated. What then happened from, from the 2016-17 seasons, they abandoned that approach to a kind of a Galactico approach. Now, the first sign in first Galactico, unfortunately for you, was obviously Higuain. They paid the buyout clause for 90-odd million, whatever it was. So there was that first, and he was, you know, come in approaching 29 years old when they signed him, which is something that I don't think Juventus would have done before. And then after that, you had Ronaldo, obviously, in 2018, and then you had DeLict in 2019. So Juventus went away from creating a team to buying, you know, one big name star, and they weren't able to sustain that. Juventus financially, they're not rich enough, they're not, they're not capable or well, it's very difficult to buy a, a big-name star for such a huge amount of money each summer and you know not see the rest of your team, the rest of your squad, weaken as a result. So I think it started from the change in the approach towards a Galactico approach. And then from there, we saw that really every season, Juventus' team, Juventus' squad, declined gradually each season. And in the first two seasons, 2016, well, or 2016-17, they got to the Champions League final. But the two seasons after that, 2017-18 and 18-19, those two seasons, Juventus didn't have good teams or squads, in my opinion. They didn't play good football. They played bad football. They won more because the other teams in Serie A, including Napoli, weren't good enough, experienced enough, however you want to say it, to take advantage of Juventus's weaknesses. And Juventus really won a little bit by default, but also a little bit by, they had some experienced champions there that just, got them over the line and then they declined a little bit more last season. And then again, this season and now these last two seasons, there have been other teams able to take advantage, namely Inter. So I think it's been a step-by-step process really since 2016, 2017, I think was when the seeds, the first seeds were planted really.
0: That makes sense. When I was initially planning for this episode, I was going to actually ask you if you could pick one person to put all the blame on, who would it be? And then I kind of realized, well, there's there's sort of multiple culprits here. I mean, you can blame the coaches, and we'll get to Allegri uh, in a little bit. You know, there was Pirlo before him and Sadi before Pirlo. You could blame Paratici. You know, I think there's been a, a steady decline in, in terms of performance in the transfer market since Marotta was not renewed. But ultimately that decision to to not renew Marotta was made by Agnelli. So is this ultimately Agnelli's responsibility here?
1: Yeah, well, obviously the buck stops with Agnelli because he is the top man. He is the top of the Juventus pyramid. So absolutely, yeah, it, it stops with him because you know, he made the decision. I mean, he's made a lot of mistakes in the, in the last five years. And I think I've changed my opinion on Agnelli because... I look at, it was almost 10 straight Scudetti. And obviously, when Agnelli came in, Juventus were in crisis. Kind of, we're going back 2010-ish to when he became the president. And Juventus were in crisis after Calciopoli. They hadn't won for years. They had those two seventh-place finishes. And when Antonio Conte came in, everything was a complete disaster. Then they went on this winning run. And I think Agnelli, for a long time, got most of the credit for that. People were like, oh, it was Agnelli taking over as president who brought this all about but then we see since Marotta's left how much Juventus have declined now I've kind of changed my opinion a a little bit and I'm thinking actually how much of that was actually really was down to Agnelli and how much of it was actually it was actually Marotta the mastermind he was the one that built everything and then obviously Antonio Conte was the spark as well you know to kick everything off so now I've changed a little bit and you know, you look at Agnelli and how many mistakes he's made in the five years. I mean, obviously, getting rid of Marotta was a huge mistake. Giving the keys to Fabio Paratici was a huge mistake because Paratici, you can say, is almost a disaster, really, as Marotta's replacement. Then you look at the coaching changes in the last four years. They've changed coaches. They've had four different, four coaching changes in the last four years. They've gone from a pragmatist to completely changed their philosophy, which was, I thought was the right thing to do, to when they went to Saudi. But then when they got Saudi, they didn't give him the players, they didn't give him the tools to make his kind of football work. You'll know that better than me, having seen what Saadi did at Napoli. Then he went from Saudi to a complete novice, which was just a bizarre change, to Pierlo. And it was like, what the hell's going on here? Maybe it was a financial decision. So he went to Pierlo who was, OK, was the same kind of coach as Maurizio Sarri because, you know, he wanted to play that kind of similar kind of football. So, OK, at least he st- stuck with the same philosophy. But then after a year of Pirlo, he completely abandoned Pirlo and went back to a pragmatist in Allegri who was already, in my opinion, outdated in the last two years of his first spell and went back to him. But not only did that, gave him a four-year contract worth 36 million nets over the four years. So you're looking at almost double that. Gross. So, you know, you're thinking, well, the coaching, and then he got the whole Super League situation where, okay, I can understand why he wants the Super League. I, In some ways, I'm, I'm in favour, uh, in many ways, I am in favour of a complete revolution of, of European football because I think nobody can touch the Premier League now. That's clear. But I didn't agree in the execution. But if you actually look at how we tried to go about that, whether you agree with it or not, it was just the most incompetent, attempt at a Super League you've ever seen it was embarrassing it was like Dr Evil style you know it was so bad you know so you look at that and you think gosh that was actually pretty damn incompetent that was from Agnelli so you look at all these mistakes he's making and you think you of course Agnelli has made a hell of a lot of mistakes but then you know you can also break it down and you can look at Paratici and you can say well Paratici was put in charge of the transfers for a number of years and and he completely failed you know building a squad, building a team, there didn't seem to be any kind of plan. Every single summer when Juventus bought players, it was like, what formation are they built buying these players for? You know, they bought players that could only fit in one formation, then they brought other players that could only suit in a different formation. There was no clear idea that you've got with Marotta where you knew what formation he was buying the players for. You knew what type of football he was buying the players for, what the manager, buying the players for the manager. That didn't happen with Piratis, like we said. He had Saadi in charge, but, Paratici was buying players that, or wasn't buying players for what was needed for Sarri's football. And so there was Paratici, you know, making, from the financial point of view, making these kind of, and now they're getting investigated for it, these kind of plus Valenza deals, get rid of Cancelo. I, I still have never, I haven't got over that now because the guy for me is the best, he's the best fullback in the Premier League. And it's like, what the hell are you doing? So, you know, a lot of mistakes were made on the transfer market. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, I think ultimately, Agnelli and, Praticci are the two main guys, but the buck stops with Agnelli.
0: I was going to say Pratici has been underwhelming, disastrous works as well. Uh, <laughs> I think, you know, he's made a couple of good purchases, delict from Ajax, although I'm not sure he's entirely lived up to that purchase price yet. Well, that remains yeah. to be seen. Chiesa from Fiorentina was a good one for sure. You have to give him that one. I think Kulusevsky was a good purchase, but like you've alluded to, was he the right player to buy to fit into the system that the manager was playing? It certainly doesn't seem that way with Allegri. But as you also said, when you change coaches so frequently, that makes the the sporting director's job pretty difficult because usually you're buying players and signing them to contracts for a couple of years. Well, if you then change your manager, now you're stuck with a guy that may not fit in the new coaches system. Mm-hmm. But typically the sporting directors are involved in those decisions to change the coaches as well. But as you said, there were other transfers that were not good ones there were some swap deals you mentioned Danilo Cancelo you know Danilo's not a bad player but Cancelo's world-class now Spinazzola Pellegrini you mentioned Artur Pianich, and in terms of least I don't think Artur is that bad of a player I yet. like him I yeah. like him I yeah mean he's a good player mm. it's more just as you said the financial side of it on whether that was a bit of a shady deal and obviously Napoli are being investigated for the Osman deal as well and then there's players like McKinney, Demerell, Rabiot, Aaron Ramsey, who only seems to play uh, for yeah. for his country and never for, for Juventus. So Pratici hasn't failed well. And then you look at Marotta, who signed with Inter in, I believe, 2018. So right after that, pretty much around the same timelines that you mentioned when things started to go off the rails mm-hmm. a little bit for Juve, in his first full season, That was the year Sadi won the Scudetto, and Inter finished only one point behind, so pretty good. And then last season, of course, Inter won the Scudetto, and now they're favourites to win another one. One player you didn't mention in terms of transfers, and I'm curious to know how much he fits into all of this, is Cristiano Ronaldo. Could you make a case that that signing also caused the train to go off the tracks a little bit?
1: Yeah, absolutely, because Juventus couldn't afford him. (laughs) It was simple as that. So he was on 30, around about 30 million euros a year uh, net. So mm-hmm. you're, you're doubling that, how much Juventus were paying. when I mean, you include taxes, 60 million a year. So you times that over four years and you're looking at 240 million plus 110 million or whatever it was for the transfer fee. So, you know, do the maths. You're, you're looking at 350, 360 million that Juventus are paying there for Ronaldo. And, you know, they they can't afford that. And, you know, as a result, they had to weaken the rest of the squad in order to pay for Ronaldo, Um, which is just madness because in 2018 to 2022, you can't win football matches with one player, not a 33-year-old anyway, that's for sure. So, you know, you've got Ronaldo up front, yet you've got a midfield of Matupidi and an agent Pjanic and, Rabiot and 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 Kedira and and then you know these other guys McKennie that last season and and Ramsey so you know uh, gaps all over the team because they they couldn't afford Ronaldo as you know as simple as that then you add in all the other mistakes I mentioned before in terms of constructing the team they were already making mistakes but trying to construct the team is impossible when you've got to pay all that money for for Ronaldo so they were then forced. And it was just a mad rush every single summer, and it still is for Juventus to balance the books, usually before the June, end of June tax year. And always Juventus would do swap deals at the end of what well, a lot of Italian teams would at the end of June in order to balance their books. And and that's where we would see these kind of these deals like the Danilo Cancelo deal, the Pellegrini Spinazzola deal. And Juventus were weakening their team. People will say, oh, but it was a good financial deal. Well, they were only forced into that financial deal. You know, Because people when, when people talk about the Cancelo-Danilo swap, I see a lot of people saying, well, actually, it was a good deal for Juventus because they made so much profit financially on that deal. And they got a player who actually was is not too bad. And he's okay, Danilo. I'm not saying he's a bad player. He's a good player. Plays for Brazil. He's not on Cancelo's level. If you want to create a team to challenge and win the Champions League, you need players of the the level of Cancelo, not the players of Danilo. Juventus weakened their team with that transfer. Now, but people say, "Ah, oh, but they made all this money on that transfer. Well, the only reason they had to make that swap deal was because they had to pay for Ronaldo and balance the books because of all the money they were spending on Ronaldo. So you can't look at it, that deal in isolation. You have to look at the reason why they had to make that deal. So yeah, the Ronaldo deal had a knock-on effect in terms of weakening the squad and then making, being forced into making bad transfer decisions elsewhere, not being able to strengthen the areas they actually really needed to strengthen, like the central midfield. I remember the season that Juventus were knocked out by Lyon in the Champions League. And their squad was so, they had such a lack of depth in their squad that they were forced to bring in Marco Olivieri. I'll never forget it. With 10 minutes to go to try and score the winner to get them into the next round. They had to bring in Marco Olivieri, who was uh, playing for the B team in Serie Chi, the Juventus under twenty one team in Serie Chi, and, and he had a dreadful record for them, and I don't think he barely even scored for them. And it's like that kind of summed up to me how badly Juventus had been run. They spent all this money on Ronaldo, yet their squad was so weak. There's such a lack of depth in the attack where Ronaldo is. They had to bring an Olivieri alongside Ronaldo to try and get them. I mean that. That was damning for me. So, so yeah, absolutely. Ronaldo was a bad mistake. And also on a commercial level, you know, it didn't really help Juventus go. I mean, it helped them get a few sponsorship deals. But if you actually look at them, how far off Juventus are from the richest teams in Europe, they're even further now than they were before Ronaldo signed. So it's had no long lasting impact in terms of taking Juventus onto the next level that Agnelli thought it would do.
0: Yeah, it seemed like the plan, because if I'm not mistaken, was the season before Ronaldo was brought in, Juve made, was it the semifinals of the Champions League? Or it was it was around there. So I, it seemed like at the time that the idea was that Ronaldo would push Juve over that hump and, and you know, with yeah. his track record playing in the Champions League. But when you don't go on deep runs, you, you mentioned losing to Lyon and some other clubs, uh, you know, in the... Quarterfinals, round of 16 of the Champions League, that's a lot of revenue you're foregoing. And that too limits who you can bring in. And then not only does that not support the coaches in terms of, as you said, giving them players to play in their system, but Ronaldo himself is a difficult player to coach because you kind of need to build your squad or play a system that's based on him. And you think of Sadi. That's not what works for Sadi. Sadi wants to defend with a press, and guys like Ronaldo or Messi or Ibrahimovic at their age simply cannot press. And, you know, that really affects their system. Now, you mentioned playing a different style, and it seems like you have now sort of abandoned that approach by bringing Allegri back and... And going back to a more uh, catenaccio based approach, and we're not talking about immobile rolling around on on the ground, <laughs> catenaccio. But you know, with that decision, there's as much as Juventini are not happy with the current makeup of the squad in the midfield and everything. There's still quite a bit of talent on the squad, and a lot of people when they saw that Allegri was signed automatically, myself included, put Juve as the favorites to win the Scudetto this season. But it still hasn't really worked out. Last time this season, Juve were third in the table on 42 points. This season, Juve are fifth, as I said, on 34 points. So eight points less than Juve had last season. So in your opinion, what's gone wrong for Juve and Allegri in the first half of this season?
1: Well, first of all, I think Juventus don't have a great team, a great squad. Let's be honest. it's Again, it's lacking. There's not many goals in the team. That's putting Allegri aside and his pragmatic, defensive, unexpansive type of football, which makes it difficult to score goals. There isn't many goals and I think Juventus have the least have scored the least amount of goals in the top half of Serie a, I believe. You know, they didn't replace Ronaldo with a goal scorer. I mean, you look at the forwards they've got, I mean Murata's never been prolific. He's not clinical. He might even leave in January potentially. You know, then you look at some of the other attackers. Uh, I mean, Mo- Moisa Kane, he's still young, developing. Kulosevski, I think he's even scored a Serie A goal this season. I mean, there isn't, there isn't that much firepower in the team. The midfield, still. Locatelli, obviously, good signing, good player. Definitely worthy of Juventus. That's a good signing. But the rest of the midfield, I do like Mello. I think there's a player in there, but you need the right manager. Allegri isn't the right manager for him, unfortunately. So, I mean, yeah, the squad is not great for starters. I don't want to say, because I do think that a better manager probably could challenge for the title, even with this squad. But it's a weak team. Uh, It's not a weak squad by Juventus' standards. That's number one. Number two, yeah, obviously, I look at Allegri and he is playing and he needs to adapt. He is playing what I consider an outdated type of football. You know, modern football, successful modern managers are almost all high-press, attacking, expansive, even in a way hybrid football that takes the game to the opposition and dominates the territory, tries to dominate possession generally. Not all, but most of them. Some of them, like Thomas Tuchel, for example, though he's going through a bit of a bad spell at the moment, he alternates, he mixes it up between a high-press and dominating possession and territory with holding off a little bit against certain teams, you know. So you can sometimes mix it up a little bit. What you can't do though is be completely, complete Catanacho, like 1960s style Intel or 60s style Milan, you know, where you're just holding off and trying to defend in your own box and then hit on the counter. That just doesn't work in modern football. It doesn't work with the modern rules. You can't defend. The art, reason the art of defence is dead is partly because the rules don't allow you to defend anymore. Things like the passive offside rule and you know VAR and all these kind of little things that just make it impossible to get away with the stuff that you could get away with in the past. So you can't defend like that. And um, yeah, I look at Allegri and it's a very basic type of football that he plays. At the start of the season, especially he was persistent with his 442 formation which was just driving me crazy i was just it was unwatchable just so rigid so predictable so easy to play against so obvious every time they attacked and Juventus never looked like scoring or creating chances they didn't even look very strong defensively so they, he was persistent with that for too long i would like to think that he's finally realized that right i shouldn't go with the 442 anymore and we've seen an improvement kind of moving away from that. But I'm still not 100% convinced that he's totally moved away from it and that he will never use it again. And there's already some reports that he might use it against Napoli, actually, on uh, <laughs> on Thursday. So we'll see. But yeah, so generally, yeah, Allegri's type of football is a little bit outdated. He needs to adapt. The results have improved a little bit in the last month, although I would say that we should take that with a pinch of salt because you've got to look at the level of the opposition that they played against Juventus in, in December and they weren't particularly strong teams. So now will be the test to see if they have started to turn the page a little bit and Allegri is adapting a little bit, being a little bit more proactive. And also, yeah, January, we'll have to see if he can get some better players in. As I said at the start, we can't blame it all on Allegri because the squad isn't that great, but Juventus need to bring in some players this January. And if they do, then let's see if Allegri can do anything with them, yeah.
0: Yeah, I was hoping Juve would and Allegri would continue with the four four two because it really <laughs> didn't seem to be working. You have you know, where does Kieza fit Is he play as he plays sort of the right wing back? Didn't really suit him. But like you said, now Juve are playing we've seen the four, two, three, one, we've seen the four three three. You've picked up thirteen points in out of fifteen out of the last five matches. Now, granted, as you said, they weren't exactly the most difficult opposition. But I think there's also the positive that Juve have scored two goals in each of those wins at least I think the the Venezia match was the one that finished 1-1 so I mean that might suggest that Allegri is kind of recognizing that because he was even doing this even against the weaker clubs early in the season where he would defend a one goal lead even against some opposition where you would think you might be better off continuing to attack and hold the ball and, and try to score more and that'll limit the risk because any team as Napoli fans know you know, with Ampli and Spezia, any team can score even a bizarre goal if you only have a one-goal lead. And, you know, you talked about playing Catanacho. Serie A is not the same Serie A that, that it used to be. I think Serie A has more goals scored than any of the top five leagues in Europe. Yes, a lot of them have been penalty kicks, and, and you mentioned Var and all that stuff, but I think it's still the top-scoring league even in terms of goals from open place. So, two I think, yeah. yeah, so likely, definitely... Needs to adapt to that. But do you think that he's recognized that the team needs to score more than one goal a game with how you have played in the last five matches? Or is it really just the quality of the opposition?
1: I would say we can't prove that it's not just down to the level of the opposition. And the reason I say that is because I look at the way that Allegri speaks, I look at his interviews, and by the way that he talks, it's like nothing has changed at all with Allegri's approach and philosophy to football. Because whenever Juventus, whenever he's asked questions in a post-match interview, he always says the same things. It's always, we have to be more solid. We have to be nastier. It's about the mentality, not the quality of the players. The players need to improve their mentality if we're going to get better. It's not about improving the quality of our play. You know, he keeps saying these kind of things. So the idea in his head is that Juventus need to be tougher to beat. They need to be better defensively. They need to be nastier. They need to have stronger personality stronger physically stronger mentality you know these are his attitudes which again for me is an outdated way of thinking in football yes all those things are important mentality is absolutely massively important being able to defend is also important if it wasn't Atalanta would have won the Serie A the last three seasons you know so of course those things are important but more important of all now is the quality of your football and being able to play expansive modern attacking football pressing high up the pitch dominating territory, taking the game to your opponents. And unfortunately for Allegri, his safety first, getting these other basics right are more important to him. And he thinks if you get those right, then the results will start to come in. And I think that's an outdated way of
0: thinking. Some people have suggested that maybe the idea is, okay, fix the defense first and then try to fix the attack later. But You've dug yourself into a pretty big hole now, and in terms of competing for the Scudetto, that's pretty much a long shot, and now the target has become top four. So that'll do for part one. In part two, we'll talk more about this match, we'll talk about the lineups, and we'll make some predictions. Welcome to part two of the Forza Napoli podcast. I'm joined by Carlo Garganese of the Italian Football Podcast. So let's talk a little bit about this match in particular. And I want to start with two very important players who are expected to be back in the Juve squad, which is Federico Chiesa and Paolo Dybala. I'm sure you'd rather have them in the squad than out of it, of course. But are you concerned that maybe they might be a little bit out of form having not played in a while?
1: Chiesa, possibly possibly he has been out for what will be what around about a month something like that i think so yeah he might be he might be lacking a little bit of sharpness dibala i mean i don't think dibala we've we've ever seen him fully fit for <laughs> i don't know i don't know how long i joke about it all the time on our pod that he's when i watch him play it's like watching a formerly great 35 year old he looks like an old man the way that he runs you know, and obviously the way that he's breaking down, I mean, the guy's had, I think, four injuries or something, maybe even five this season alone already. And, you know, he is somebody that obviously physically, his body does seem to be, I mean, he's only 28 still. He should be at his peak now. He he, he never looks fully fit to me. And we, When we're talking about the pressing game, I mean, this is somebody you can't put in a team. Uh, again, talking about modern football, talking about Ronaldo, you know, I had the same doubts about Dybala. And when you're talking about Chiesa and Dybala, I've been yet to be convinced in 18 months, the two of them being in the same squad, that they're capable of playing in the same team together on a consistent basis for a team that, that you want to go on and challenge for major titles. I'm not convinced. I think the only formation that maybe you can get the both of them to work in and get the best out of both of them and the team is a 4 one possibly, with Dybala as the number 10 and with Chiesa on the right or the left on the wide right or wide left, and then, and then you need a number nine. I think you play Chiesa in a four four two on the right, which is what Allegri was doing. You completely destroy him offensively. I mean, look at Chiesa's stats this season. Look how many goals he's got, assists he's got. That's because Allegri's been, for most of the season, played him on the right midfield, completely taking away everything that he's got, taking him away from goal, putting him too deep, or playing him in attack in, in a front two, which... Maybe in time, he might be able to play that role with the right players around him. But yeah, and and then as for DiBala, playing DiBala in a 4-3-3, I just don't think it works. You can't play him as a wide forward and you can't play him as a false nine, in my opinion, unless it's someone like Pep Guardiola, that's manager, that has such a brilliant style of football that you're always dominating possession, that you're always around the penalty area of the opposition, that it doesn't matter almost what position your players play in. It's all about getting the ball in the right territories and then letting your players play around that. But in a less rigid system like Allegri's, a 4-3-3, I don't think he works in that. And in a 4-4-2, I don't like the formation, but I just think that Dybala, I think Dybala is probably best in a front two, but I'm not sure in a 4-4-2, I, I, again, he can't press. And I, so I think there's tactical issues there, trying to fit the both of them in together. I mean, there's tactical issues full stop with Dybala in modern football, which is why I've said, I, I don't know whether I would give him a new contract personally, at the end of the season. But, I mean, yeah, to answer your your question against Napoli, uh, maybe you start only start one of them, not both of them, seeing they're both coming back from injuries. It'd It'd be a bit of a gamble, I think, to throw both of them in, but then given the list of absentees, maybe Allegri's forced to do that.
0: Yeah, the thing about Dybala, though, I was looking at his stats, and when he does play, he doesn't play as much as you would like him to, but when he does play, he seems to produce. He has eight goals and four assists. In only 17 appearances in all competitions, so at least when he's on the field, he's performing. Yeah, I think Kez is more a victim of the system than anything. We all know what a talent he is, and your co-host Nima Tavali Rutsi suggested that he could even be sort of a Ballon d'Or candidate if he was being used properly. At least you look at his performance in the uh, the Euros. You suggested earlier that there's reports that Allegri could go back to the four four two. I've watched as many Juve games as I can. I try to watch all the top clubs, and Moise Kane and Federico Bernardeschi have played quite well in the last couple of matches. Do you think that could get them into the starting 11 for this match? Or again, is it that it's just they're playing against weaker opposition and that's making them perhaps look better than than they are?
1: Yeah, I think the opposition obviously plays a part. I think with Bernadeschi, he has he has stepped it up. To be fair, he's probably Juventus's best player in December. He got a few assists, didn't he? he got a, his first goal in God knows how long, and yeah, he, it was. Uh, I, I looked it up
0: actually. It was I think it was 513 days, and it Christ. was uh, 43 matches without a goal. So it it's crazy. Yeah, yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think Bernadeski will start. I think you've got to start him after the run that he's on. Plus, Allegri loves Bernadeschi. He loves him. Kane, uh, I'm not sure what his situation is with Kane in terms of his health for this game. Um, so I'm not, I'm not 100% sure on that. We'll have to see in the next couple of days. Maratta as well. We have to see what's going to happen with Maratta because we know there's a situation going on with Barcelona where Morata's given his OK to join Barca, but Juventus needs to find a replacement first. I doubt very much they'll find that replacement by Thursday. But nevertheless... What's his state of mind like for this game? It's very difficult to predict the 11s for this game. Really, really hard. There are a lot of players out. So, you know, I think that some of the players will pick themselves. But it, probably an attack, I think it's quite difficult to predict Juventus' attack. I think it's quite hard this game.
0: Well, you think it's hard predicting Juve's squad. <laughs> Try predicting Napoli's. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but... Yeah. um that's an interesting one. It, it's similar to, I mean, not the same type of player at all or position even. But with with Napoli, we sold Manolas really before the mark, the window even opened. And mm. even though he's available, you also don't want to risk injuring that player and causing that that deal to collapse. So yeah, there's. I is he still available? He is still available, Manolas. Well, not anymore because the window is now. Yeah. Now open. Oh, you meant like, you meant at the, meant at the at end, end of the month? month. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It seemed like yeah, for yeah. the Spezia match, we didn't yeah. have Kuli but we didn't suit up, Manolas. Actually, he was already in Greece. <laughs> he took <laughs> on. he was gone. But technically, mm. he was still a Napoli player. But either way, you're not going to risk uh, him getting injured, mm. especially someone who's injury prone like that. Morata, you know, maybe a little bit different, but that definitely affects who you start. Before we get to the starting formations, can you just give the listeners a quick update on players who are not available for for Juve either due to injury or COVID?
1: For Juve, well, Kielini and Arthur are definitely out with COVID. Those two are definitely out. Ramsey, obviously Ramsey's out. <laughs> he's, he's always out. Uh, so, so Ramsey won't be playing. Uh, Danilo, Danilo is definitely out as well. They're the ones that I could say for sure are out. The rest, we have to see because we, like we said, we're, we're, we're talking here on Monday. There's still four days, three days to go until the game. So we'll, we'll have to see. We'll have to see the others. But, if you want me to go into the starting eleven, I, I think that the, the back four picks itself: the goalkeeper Chesney, Cuadrado, Delict, Bonucci, Alexandre. I think that picks itself because I think Pellegrini is also struggling a little bit as well. So I think really they don't have any other options because you're not going to play Lugani and Danilo's out. So the back four picks itself. Then the midfield: it all really depends what formation does he go with. Does he go four-two-three-one? Does he go four-three-three? Does he go four-four-two? It all depends on that. Arthur had been playing before, in December before, but obviously he's out. So that reason, Locatelli will come back in. Allegri's been against playing Locatelli and Arthur in the same team for some reason. For me, those two would play every game if I was the Juventus manager. So Locatelli, I think, will definitely start. If it's a 4-3-3, I think you're probably looking at Rabiot on the left central midfield, and then you're looking at either Benton Kerr or McKennie. At right centre midfield. If it's a four-three-three, three. if it's a four-two-three-one or a four-four-two, you're probably looking at Locatelli and take your pick, really, from the others. I think if it's a four-four-two, depending on how attacking, if he wants to go really attacking, he could go Bernadeschi on the left, Chiesa on the right. But knowing Allegri, I don't think he will go attacking, even if he does pick a four-four-two. So he could go Rabiot in that horrible kind of hybrid left midfield role. Uh, and then maybe Chiesa on the right or bernardeschi and then two men up front. Or he could go Chiesa up front with DiBala, or he could pick Morata up front. It's so hard to predict, you know, if he goes at a four three three up front, does he play Morata? And then let's say Chiesa and bernardeschi either side, which is probably what I would do. Or does he try DiBala again in a false nine and leave Morata out because of his transfer situation? Or does he go four two three one and go DiBala? I mean, it's really hard to predict. We're gonna to have to see how he trains. Yeah, we'll know. We'll probably know in a day or two because we'll see how they're training. We'll yeah. know. We'll know what formation he's likely to go with. But right now, it's quite difficult to predict.
0: Yeah, I like the the four two three one. I mean, like you said, maybe it's a bit too attacking for Allegri, but with and assuming Morata plays, you play Morata in the nine with Dibala in the 10, and then Kies and, and Bernardeski pick whichever side, I suppose, uh, as the two the two wingers. Let me give you an update on Napoli squad so you can sit back and relax for a little bit because there's there's quite a bit of an update here. So we have three players at AFCON, Adam Unas, Frank Zambo and, and Kaladu Koulibaly. Victor Osman pulled out of the tournament, but he's also contracted COVID. You know, almost exactly a year. It, it seems to happen on his birthday every time and in Nigeria. But even if he were to recover from COVID, he's still recovering from the face injury and that would keep him out at least until the middle of January. I think it's probably going to be closer to February. So he wasn't going to play regardless. Speaking of COVID, Fabian Ruiz tested positive on Boxing Day and then tested negative on the 29th. So he's back in the squad now. I know Omicron is kind of weak and people recover quickly from it, but I wonder if maybe that was a false positive because that's a, a pretty quick recovery. We haven't seen any other players recover that quickly. Lorenzo Insigne is also negative. He tested be- positive before the Spezia game. So unless he gets sold to TFC in January, which I think is pretty unlikely, I think that deal will happen in June or he'll sign the deal to join in June. Then he should be in the squad. Lozano tested positive on the 28th so he's self-isolating in Mexico it seems like he's not going to make it I mean he would have to test negative probably today or tomorrow just to be able to fly back on time to get into the squad. Elmas tested positive on the 30th so he's self-isolating in North Macedonia. Andrea Petagna and Kevin Malqui were both self-isolating in Italy because they had both been in contact with people who tested positive positive. Fortunately, Patania tested negative on Monday, so he will rejoin the squad. We're still waiting to hear on the situation with Malcuit, which is pretty important for our starting eleven, actually. And if that's all not bad enough, then you have Mario Rui, who picked up a yellow card against Spezia, so he's suspended for this match, which is not exactly something we needed. Now, we could have Axel Twanzibet in the squad. The latest reports are that Napoli and Manchester United have agreed to a dry loan for €500,000 and that Twanzibit would join Napoli for the balance of the season. Now, if I understand correctly, in order to register him, we'd have to terminate another contract, and most likely Fauzi Gulam would be the player that we would terminate because he's most likely not going to be renewed in June anyhow. But at the same time... He's your left back. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We kind of need him for this match. The only other one we have is... Uh, Zanoli, who hasn't played all year, he's one of the the youngsters, who looks promising, but I mean, it's a pretty big Mm -hmm. stage for that. And that's why I say that Kevin Malqui is so important because what we've seen is when we don't have Mario Rui, we can move Di Lorenzo Mm -hmm. to the left and play Malqui at right back. Mm -hmm. The other thing is, with the whole registration process, I doubt that Twanzibit is going to be able to get into the squad for this match anyways. They're saying Mm -hmm. more likely he'll get in for the Sampdoria match. So with all of that, I think we'll see David Ospina start in goal, We'll have Amir Rachmani and Juan Jesus at center back. And then, like I said, if we have Malqui, we'll put Di Lorenzo on the left and Malqui on the right. Otherwise, we have to use either Lam or Zanoli at left back, which is a bit of a concern, especially if Keza's is playing on that side. Mm. I would suggest a three-man back line. We've seen that as well sometimes. But without Elmas, with no Mario Rui and potentially no Malqui, we basically have no one that can play wing back. So that's not really an option in the midfield, with Angisa out, I think Stanislav Lobotka would start in the double pivot with Fabian Ruiz. And then, assuming Insignia is available, which I think he will be, he would start on the left wing and Mateo Politano on the right wing. Then you have Piotr Zielinski in the number 10 and Dries Mertens as strikers. So, I mean... All things considered, it's still a pretty good squad, I would say. It's, yeah. you know, a lot of reserve players in there. The, the issue is, you don't the really fence. have... The defence is the
1: concern for me, yeah. for Napoli. I think you're still very strong from the midfield upwards. Obviously, when you don't have Aussie men, you lose that that depth that you have in attack. Uh, yeah, and I'm
0: hoping with at least now Fabian coming in, that was the big issue without Osiman, It was great at first when Mertens was scoring.
1: Mm-hmm. When
0: he doesn't score, there's there's not mm-hmm. anyone else left. And you hope Zelensky can score. Elmas stepped up at one point. Hopefully Fabian can, can do that as well. All right, Carlos, let's close with some predictions. Uh, if you're not superstitious about making them, <laughs> and, and you don't have to if you don't want to. But how do you see this match playing out?
1: It's, it's it's a difficult one. I, I I was thinking about this the other day, and I was kind of leaning towards Juventus, but at that time it looked like Insigne might be out, and it looked like Fabian Ruiz might have been out as well. Now those two might play, and I'm looking at Napoli's team, and it's it's looking a lot stronger. So I I might cop out and go for a draw, a one-one draw. But if you had to ask me for a winner, I would go for Juventus. An arrow Juventus win. If I had to pick a winner, but I think it, it could easily be a 1-0 draw as well.
0: Yeah, we're pretty much on the same page there. I, I was going to say I'd be content with a draw, but I'm leaning towards a 1-0 Juventus win. And even though you know we talked about playing Catanacho and protecting the lead, with Oseman not there, if if some of these guys don't step up, if we're not able to create chances, I can definitely see this being a 1-0 a Juve win at yeah. the Alliance.
1: Losing uh, Koulibaly... Anguissa yeah. and Ossimen those three. What was so good for me about Napoli early on in the season is that there was such a great mix of power and technical quality with mental quality. Napoli had a bit of everything. They had a bit of everything in that sort. You take those three out and you lose probably your three most physical players in the squad, but also from a mental point of view, very mentally strong, certainly Koulibaly and and Anguissara as well. I mean, he's been. I mean, for me, I said last week reminds me a little bit of Yaya Toure. I mean, I'm not saying he's anywhere near that level because he's a, obviously an absolute all time legend. But that kind of player, you know, he's physically very big, very strong, but he's also bloody skillful. I was checking out the, some stats the other day, and he's in the top five in Serie A this season for dribbles. Dribbles, yeah. He dribbles always completely is. He carries the ball. You know, so I think you lose those three. And you really you do lose three players where when you're lining up in the tunnel before the game and you're looking at who you're up against you see three giants like that and you think straight away that that's an advantage for you if you have those three lining up for you so I think that's also a reason why Napoli have struggled a lot in the last month they've lost that kind of that fear factor that those three bring as well
0: yeah and I know you've also talked about on your show about maybe Napoli shouldn't compete for the Europa League because that's draining, you know, the energy out of the squad. The one thing I would say about that is that Spalletti has rotated quite a bit for those matches, but the problem came when we started getting the injuries and a lot of people have talked about the depth of Napoli or lack thereof and for me it's it's not so much a depth issue as much as it is an injury issue because we were doing fairly well when we were playing the reserve players in the Europa League and, and our regulars in said Yeah. But when you have to start playing your reserve players every three days, I mean, that's mm-hmm. hard enough on even starters, let alone the backups. Mm. So that's really, it's crazy. also
1: the travel, it's the traveling yeah. as well. It's also the preparation, having a whole week to prepare for a Serie A game versus getting back late on Thursday night, Friday, getting a rest. And then suddenly you've got two days to prepare For your Serie A game, I mean, it makes such a big difference, you know, from a preparation point of view, especially for someone as smart as Spalletti, who's very smart tactically. So, yeah, you've got Barcelona now. You have to play, you've got to go for that game. And and the fact is, I think you're probably, sadly, I think you're probably out of the title race now. So you might as well play for it, you know, but back then, I wouldn't have done.
0: Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, you're not that far behind us. So we also have to keep an eye on like top four is absolutely the priority, but yeah, I think, I think they will go for it. Hopefully players can start getting health and we can become more competitive. Carlo, that's all we have time for today, but thank you so much for taking the time to join me.
1: No, no, it was great. It was a great pleasure. Yeah. Thanks. Happy new year again to everyone. I hope, uh, yeah, you'll have a better 2022 than, than 2021. And uh, yeah, I look forward to Sadiar being back this week.
0: Absolutely. You can find Carlo on Twitter at Carlo Garganese, and you can find his show, the Italian Football Podcast with John Solano and Nima Root ruzzidi at Pod. That's I-T-A foot pod. You can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore fischetti 5 and you can find the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Forza Napoli pod. I'll be back later in the week to review this match and to preview our next one, which is against Sampdoria on Sunday. But until then, I'm Joe Fischetti, Forza Napoli sempre.